Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to uh, Pablo Bachkowski and Eugenia Michelstein about the new book, The Digital Environment, How We Live, Learn, Work and Play Now. Understanding digital technology in daily life. Why we should think holistically in terms of a digital environment instead instead of discrete devices and apps. Increasingly, we live through our personal screens. We work, play, socialize and learn digitally. The shift uh, to remote everything during the pandemic was another step in a decades-long march towards, towards the digitization of everyday life made possible by innovations in media, information, and communications technology. In the digital environment, Pablo Wyszkowski and Eugene Mitchell-Stein offer a new way to understand the role of the digital in our daily lives, calling on us to turn our attention to our discrete devices and apps, to the array of artifacts and practices that make up the digital environment that envelops every aspect of our social experience. Well, Pablo, Eugenia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Galina. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you, have you here. So as we have gone through quite unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. So, um, you know, it, it has been a very uh, intense 18-month uh, period and the pandemic continues uh, globally. Um, for me personally, um, I used to travel for work um, between one and two times uh, every month. Um, so... Um, the pandemic has meant, uh, you know, stopping all of that and having much more time to reflect um, uh, on work issues and um, to devote to analysis and writing. Um, uh, at the personal level, my, I have two, two daughters. They are, you know, adolescents, so they did not require, um, you know, the hand-holding that many of my friends um, who um, have children uh, of a younger age um, mm. uh, had to give. So uh, in that sense, I was in a privileged situation, I still am, and I'm also privileged in the sense of having a stable employment that... Um, you know, was not, was modified, but was never threatened by um, the, you know, the pandemic per se. Um, I, um, in terms of um, uh, work, I I had already been uh, very active in, um, you know, using remote, uh, you know, technologies for remote connectivity. Most of my collaborators are outside, um, out of town. Um, so, um, and out of the country. So I was very used to, you know, Google Meets and other uh, platforms mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, everyday uh, work activities, WhatsApp, etc. So th- that, you know, was only intensified, but was not uh, dramatically changed. Um, and, and finally, what I would say is that at the beginning, um, there was a lot of uh, information consumption on issues having to do with the pandemic due to the, you know, unprecedented nature of the public health crisis. At one point, I realized that I was spending a lot of time doing that, and that, that was also a source of um, anxiety. Um, so I, uh, since I sort of reduced drastically uh, that information consumption, that really helped uh, with concentration and focus on the work. So for me, I was also used to working remotely, uh, mostly for research and organization of events, that kind of thing. But what changed dramatically was teaching. I started to mm-hmm. teach to teach via, via Zoom 
And that was completely different for me and for the students. And while we were able to do it, I think my students learned and I taught and it was successful if you think productivity-wise. I still think it was horrible. I miss seeing students face-to-face and I really don't know how, when that's going to happen here in Argentina. So, and that was work-wise. And family-wise, I have two young children. They are uh, four and nine. And I've spent a lot more time with them this year. And it's been eye-opening. One, that I enjoy their company. And two, that people worry about not spending that much time with their children. And I think it didn't make that much of a difference anyway. So people are worried I'm not spending time with them. I used to travel quite a lot too, and I haven't traveled for the last 18 months. And I see them as happy as they were when I traveled quite often for work. So it's been nice spending time with them, but I don't see that much of a difference in, in the way they are and the way we, we get on with each other. So it's also being, um, I'd say, refreshing and, and reassuring that when I go back to traveling and to work and to being like 10 hours out of my house, it's not going to be a tragedy for them. So that's the good news, I'd say. Yes, it has been such a mix of experiences for all of us. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Of course. Um, so I was born and raised in Argentina, um, and I had a first uh, professional career as a clinical psychologist. Um, I did both undergraduate and graduate studies in psychology, first general and undergraduate, and then I have a doctorate in clinical psychology and worked for four years in a residency program in a mental health hospital in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And um, in the middle of my residency, I, you know, came across, um, you know, computing and uh, technology um, used for social relations, as I used to call it at the time. And I became so intrigued, this is 1992, 1993, by the potential of technologies like hypertext, um, and you know, chat, uh, etc., um, uh, for um, you know, everyday relationships. That I decided uh, to, once I finished my residency, to not continue anymore working as a clinical psychologist and retrain as a social scientist um, with a focus on understanding the role of uh, technology in everyday life. So I applied for a PhD um, in the U.S. at Cornell University, where I did my degree in what was then a very new field called Science and Technology Studies. And uh, randomly, um, during my second year um, in the program, I, um, you know, my favorite uh, hometown newspaper in Buenos Aires uh, went online. Um, this was 19, March of 1996. And um, I discovered the world then of online news and online journalism. And um, I decided to, I, I was so intrigued by the transformations that uh, were arising in the production, the circulation, and the consumption of news that I decided to write uh, my dissertation on that. And, and since then, sort of that ushered me into the field of communication and media studies, which, is, um, which has been my field uh, for the past 20 years. Um, after I finished my, my PhD at Cornell, I went to MIT, um, where I was an assistant professor of organization studies in the Sloan School of Management. And after four and a half years there, I was recruited by Northwestern uh, to work on a new program called Media, Technology, and Society uh, that uh, was uh, started in the early 2000s. I came in 2005. Um, and since then, I've been here. Uh, and I've been very, very happy and uh, have you know great support and wonderful colleagues and great students, uh, including Eugenia, who's a uh, former uh, student of mine and now dear colleague and friend. Yes, so I studied political science and I worked as a television producer and journalist for my first career, I'd say. So this is quite usual to see in academia, people who start with, with one career and then switch to another career. While mm. I was working as a journalist, I, I got into an internship at the BBC in London. And while I was in London at the BBC and working online for the first time, I used to work in television as a television producer. 
I met an, a friend of mine who was doing, who was in London doing her master's. I said, how did you do this? And I applied for a scholarship. So I, I wanted so much to live in London for a year that I applied to a scholarship to do a master's. Not so much because I, I wanted to study, which I liked fair enough, but because I wanted to live in London. So I applied to a scholarship and I got into London School of Economics and I did a master's in media and communications. So that was when I said, mm, this is interesting. I might want to do this rather than, than working in journalism. And when I came back to Argentina, I started working in Google, which was recently in Argentina. But I also started uh, teaching as a, as a teaching assistant in Universidad de San Andres, which is where I teach now as an associate professor. And I, and I told the, the professor I was working with, I, I really want to do this. I really want to, to be a professor. And he told me, then you need to do a PhD and you should do it in the States. And, and, and I can recommend you people that you, you might want to work with. And he recommended that I work with Pablo Bokoski, which, of course, I didn't know. I mean, I had read some of his work, but I didn't know him personally. And I mm. remember meeting him in, in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, uh, in a very well-known cafe, La Biela, here, here in Buenos Aires. And, and I applied, of course, to Northwestern, and I applied to other programs, and I, I got accepted in a few of them, but I decided to go to Northwestern. And that's when I started to work with Pablo. And because I had already studied political science and I was interested in politics and that kind of thing, I did my dissertation on, on how people got information and participated both online and offline uh, during elections. And, and we also have several projects on which we work together, uh, first uh, as a graduate student myself and now as, as colleagues. If I, if I may add, um, the same colleague that uh, suggested Eugenia that she might be interested in studying at Northwestern, in parallel, sent me an email. I was on vacation, I remember, um, with my family, and sent me an email, and, and he says, you know, there is this incredible student. She's a once-in-a-lifetime student. You really have to recruit her to go to Northwestern. And I said, but, you know, I'm, I'm on vacation. Um, no, he insisted. So, um, so I I remember sitting with uh, a laptop uh, overlooking uh, a pool with my my children were very young then, uh, making sure that they wouldn't drown, that they were swimming, okay. And I reached mm -hmm. out to Eugenia, and um, we um, we were very very fortunate to get her. She had many offers. She's being very modest. She had many offers from the top contenders. Had to work very hard to recruit her, and I, I vividly remember uh, that uh, first meeting at uh, La Biela with Eugenia and, and her husband Ruben, and I was able to, um, to convince her to come to Northwestern as opposed to to go to um, a few other places uh, that, that were very top competitors, and it's been one of my my. my most uh, successful uh, accomplishments, I think, so far. I mean, we we have developed a great um, productive uh, work relationship, but also wonderful friendship, which really powers and energizes a lot of the work we do. Yes, it's been that way for me too. And, and it's also interesting that we can see things from different perspectives. Pablo, uh, as he said, used to be a clinical psychologist. I used to be a, a, a journalist. And it's also interesting that um, the mentorship that Pablo has conducted with me, for which I'm very grateful, I can see I can do it with my younger students now. So it's like I when when I meet a young student and I say this person is interested in academia or in research, I, I think about what things Pablo told me or things Pablo worked with me, and I reproduce that kind of thing. So I think it's interesting how, how mentorship uh, kind of builds on itself. That's a really great, inspiring story about collaborations between uh, students and professors that uh, many of our younger listeners would appreciate as well. So you bring quite a few uh, complementary expertise from uh, uh, both your uh, fields, like, uh, like you said, from uh, clinical psychology and journalism. And your passions have really culminated in the book, Digital Environment. So can you tell us what is it about and how did you come to writing it? Sure. Um, so the story of the origin of the book uh, is very interesting in itself. So um, what... So I'm going to do a little bit of the prehistory and then I do the history and then um, I'll pass it on to Eugenia so that she can uh, tell us about the book. So when Eugenia 
um, was finishing up uh, her coursework and was getting ready to do the dissertation, she and I um, had, uh, in parallel, during the first three years of, of her uh, PhD, had done a series of studies um, about uh, the different uh, editorial interests of journalists and members of the public. We have published uh, the results in a number of papers, and I remember the day she was going to leave, or the day before she was going to leave uh, Chicago to go back to Argentina, to Buenos Aires, we had lunch, and if I remember correctly, we went to uh, to a sushi place. Um, yes, it was a sushi place. <laughs> um, uh, so this was many, many years ago, probably 2010, 2011, I would say, something 2010, like that. 2010, it was like 11 years ago. All right. Uh, so in 2010, and, and we start talking, and, and, and I said to Eugenia, look, uh, all these studies that we publish, it would be... Um, you know, we, if we had a, a, a larger canvas, rather than 7,000, 8,000 words, if we had 70,000 words, we could tell a much more interesting story. She agreed. So that led us to write our first book together, which is The News Gap, which MIT Press published in 2013. Um, we wrote that book. Then Eugenia finished uh, her dissertation, um, which was on a related but different topic. And when she finished her dissertation, since um, I enjoy so much working with her and, and our friendship in general, so... And it was I, mutual. It was mutual. Um, I, I asked her if she would be interested in, in now that she was like, you know, uh, was a doctor and um, also uh, had a job uh, already lined up at the University of San Andres um, to do a um, to launch a center, a research center together on the study of media and society in Argentina, joined between Northwestern University of San Andres. She mm-hmm. thought it was a fabulous idea. So we launched that center in 2015. As part of the center, we wanted to to have a unit that was engaged with matters of the polity and engaged with the current conversations in society. So we decided that we would not only do social scientific research to be published in journals, that we would also try to publish actively and routinely um, in the media. So um, one of the venues where we started uh, publishing with some frequency is a, a new site in Spanish called Infobae, which now is the largest Spanish-speaking news site in the world. Uh, started in Buenos Aires, but they have now offices in the U.S., Mexico, Colombia, and uh, it's a very, very large and well-known operation. So as as, a, as part of the process of uh, writing for them, um, we became uh, acquaintances with the publisher. So one day um, I I was flying to give a keynote at the University of Edinburgh, and during the flight I thought, well, you know, I enjoyed this doing so much, and it might be interesting to have a regular column that on a monthly basis addresses, uh, in particular, what we call the social study of the internet or social study of digital culture, in the same way that there is very interesting um, public understanding of science work or science journalism on the physical and natural sciences, to try to do the same for the social sciences, in particular the social sciences of the internet. I asked Eugenia if she would be interested in doing this. She said yes. So in, I remember this vividly, in the taxi uh, going from the Edinburgh airport to the hotel near the university, um, I sent an email message to the publisher of this site. And within minutes, about whether he'd be interested in publishing this, within minutes, um, he said uh, yes. So uh, then Eugenia and I took about six months um, to... Um, figure out how we would address this, um, what would be the format, what would be the typical length, etc. And, um, you know, we decided that what we would do is um, to, inter- to, to, to basically focus on one particular topic per column and um, 
to essentially showcase recent work by the leading experts on uh, that topic by interviewing them rather than us retelling their work, conducting interviews with them and synthesizing the main uh, you know, findings and the main ideas into a single column. So we did um, that, and after about four to six months, we started to see that even though the topics were very different, for instance, race and ethnicity, or sports, or politics, or childcare, or schooling, etc., there were some common denominators. And um, we, we decided that it might be interesting to try to write a book um, sort of essentially going deeper into these common denominators. And that's how uh, the book was born. And, and with that, I turn it over to Eugenia to tell us what the book is about. Yes. So we had several columns, not all, of, not all of them, several columns that had already been published. And of course, before interviewing the experts and the, and the people who were doing research on these topics, we had read their work. So we had a a pretty good idea of, of what we wanted to say, but then we had to shape it in 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 the form of a book. We had to say, what what's the book going to be about? It's going to be sections. There's going to be chapters. Each column is going to be a chapter. And we also, of course, had to have the permission from the news site that had already uh, published our columns, and we had to translate them. But what I think mm. is more interesting is that we started talking about this, I'd say, maybe... December or January, and then in March, February, March 9th to 2020, we were, okay, we're going to write this book, we need an introduction, what's going to be the setting, and that's when the pandemic started. And I remember I was in the same office, so we're still coming to the office, the pandemic was something that was happening in China, maybe in Italy, and I remember telling, uh, talking about this with Pablo and saying, listen, we're all going to do everything online now there's going to be shutdowns, we're going to do everything online, and this is, a, this is a good way to frame our argument because the digital environment will, will, will allow uh, many of our activities to go on. Not unchanged, but to go on. And many activities, of course, were changed dramatically or couldn't go on. And, and we thought about this. So this wasn't, we, we didn't think about the book because of the pandemic. We thought about the book because we were already seeing this phenomenon of the, of the digital environment and, and its four main characteristics that I'm, I'm going to dwell on later. And, but the pandemic put that on, like, um, I'd say on relief. Like it was, we were, it was more clear the importance of the digital environment for, for our, for our lives, for our work, for our family relationships, for our friendships, even for dating. So uh, what the pandemic did and what the shutdowns caused by the pandemic did is that, that it, it, it highlighted the importance of the digital environment for, for uh, I would say, late modern life or postmodern life. And, and, what are the, and we thought out what are the characteristics of the digital environment? What are the features of the digital environment? And, and with, first of all, there's totality. It, it envelops the, the, uh, completely our lives. And it's not, I'd say, reduced to our cell phones or reduced to the television or reduced to our laptop. Uh, we're all connected. Uh, digital environment is part of our life, and it's not a discrete issue. The the second, uh, I'd say, feature of, of the book of the digital environment, it's it's um, duality. So it's not set. I mean, it 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 it's co constructed by technology, but it also has to do with the human practices that a construct the technology and b interact with the technology. What is the third characteristic of the digital environment, or which we dwell on, 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 on the book? It's conflict. Because of this duality, there is conflict. So it's not resolved. Conflict is central to the way we understand the digital environment. Conflict uh, in work relationships, conflict in politics, conflict in activism. So rather than say we are looking at a world that, that will leave conflict behind, that everything will be resolved by you know, in, in artificial intelligence of the like, we say no. Conflict is a central issue in the digital environment. And the, the good thing, I would say, the positive thing about this is that because there is conflict and because there is duality, um, there is indeterminacy. So we can't say for sure what the digital environment will look like. And we as human beings, as social actors, have a central role to play in this indeterminacy and in shaping what this digital environment will look like for us and also for our children. 
So I think that uh, what the um, the genesis of the book was saying, yes, technology is important, digital life is important, but this interacts with social life, this interacts with who we are as societies, as human beings, and we definitely have a say in this. And so what we, we propose in the book is like taking taking charge of this, like taking responsibility for this. And that's it. this is the genesis of the book. And it's interesting that while we were writing the columns, um, this idea was sort of floating around, but what the book allowed, we're writing the book aloud, was to put the, all this together and, and to shape it, like uh, I would say, in, in the sense of, yes, we live in a digital environment, but it's a man-made digital environment, and we have a responsibility for this, or a human-made digital environment. Yes, and the way you brought uh, these discrete entities together into one coherent whole, it actually makes so much intuitive sense uh, in, in some sense uh, about the digital environment. So I was wondering what kind of technologies enable digital environment and maybe internet of things, does it somehow also feed into it? Yes, that's an excellent question. Um, the, the digital environment um, is historically um, quite new. So what we argue in the book is that, you know, for, for many thousands of years, uh, human beings live their life mostly in one environment, the natural environment. So whether it was rain or fire, whether it was cold or hot, determined a lot of um, what humans, human beings did at the time. They led mostly a nomadic existence. Um, so they were in part at the mercy of the natural environment. Um, then, um, you know, from the large historical uh, framework, more recently, human beings became sedentary and they first built villages and then towns and then cities. And, and you know, since then, the urban environment has played a huge role in our daily lives, whether there is traffic or congestion, um, uh, segregation. There are many uh, essential aspects of our daily life that are strongly shaped by this, uh, you know, human-made urban environment. And in the same way that when we think about a city, we do not think about, okay, this I'm experiencing this because of the sewage, or I'm experiencing this because of the paved roads, mm. uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the digital environment is like the urban environment, right? It's built by people, but it envelops our existence and its experience as a totality. There are discrete technologies, um, there is all kind of infrastructure that we don't see, um, you know, wire, transatlantic wiring, satellite technology, uh, server farms that are absolutely essential to our life in the digital environment. But much like the sewage um, in the urban environment, we just don't think about that and we, for the most part, don't see it and don't pay attention to it until it breaks, which is the mm. same that happens, you know, oh, Facebook is down, and th then we, we pay attention to the servers or to whatever it is, the technical problem uh, at hand. So there is a lot of infrastructure that um, is absolutely critical. Um, there is the software um, that powers a lot of the information processing. Um, there are the devices, increasingly mobile devices, um, where we access this information, and um, there, there is uh, the or there are the different platforms and programs that we use. Not the software behind the scenes, but the, the platforms and programs that we use to interact with the digital environment and to interact with each other through the digital environment. So it's a very very complex constellation of technologies, um, of which we only see that the pieces of technology that we interact with, either, you know, the mobile phone as a piece of hardware or, say, your favorite social media platform as a piece of software or, you know, integrated software plus the infrastructure, um, et cetera. So, but the, the one critical aspect, and in this I want to, to add to something that Eugenia said, is that like 
um, you know, the urban environment, the digital environment is made uh, by human beings. So despite all the dystopic conversations and that we have, for instance, around the social dilemma, you know, the, the Netflix documentary and the idea that, you know, I don't know, social media uh, are destroying democracy or algorithms are causing X, Y, and Z in terms of social ills, these algorithms, these social media have been constructed by people and organizations. Um, unlike the urban environment, it's much newer. So our ability to intervene is comparatively greater. And we need, we have written this book in part, not only to share this vision of the role of technology in everyday life, but also to serve a little bit as an empowerment uh, tool, an empowering tool uh, for us, as Eugenia said, to take charge. To, to build an environment in which we really want to live in, a more just and diverse and inclusive environment. And now is the time, because in 150, 200 years, it would be much harder, in the same way that it's much harder to modify uh, a city now than when it was when it was being first built. Yes, and, and I'd like to say something about this, that we are thinking of the public discourse on media and technology sometimes makes it makes it seem like, I don't know, technology or even algorithms are like sets that they can't be changed. Facebook is that way. Google is that way. Twitter is that way. Like there's nothing. Uh, that's because fake news. That's that's the reason fake news are, are disseminated. And what we wanted to propose and go against this public discourse of there's nothing we can do about this as human beings. That's the way companies are assessed. There are lots of things we can do, and there are lots of things we could be able to do if we thought about this. So go against this defeatist or even dystopic discourse on technology, algorithms, uh, social media platforms, and say, listen, we made the cities, we built these cities, we can also build the digital city uh, the way the way that, that works uh, for equality and for justice and for inclusion. Yeah, for sure, and that's a really crucial uh, point, and... Uh... Like Pablo said earlier, sometimes we don't really know that something is at play before it breaks, like sewage system. <laughs> so hopefully that's not going to break. <laughs> so I was uh, just wondering if you can give us a few examples where, uh, what roles do digital environments play in different aspects of our lives? Maybe even some things that we don't really see necessarily, like in work, education, politics, uh, even how we relax. Absolutely. Well, for instance, this conversation, we are having this conversation, my understanding, in three different continents. Um, and it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the digital technology that is being used to communicate, to record and to store this conversation and subsequently at your end to edit and publish that. And at an even later stage for listeners to actually access this content. Right? I choose to call it magic. <laughs> it I mean, I, I sometimes think I, I'm 55 years old and I sometimes think that I live in a world of science fiction. Mm. That uh, when I was growing up, um, it would be unthinkable that we could have this conversation in this way without paying a cent beyond what our employers pay for connectivity, et cetera, which is, which is not to be discounted. But, you know, imagine, you know, in the 1970s, to have this conversation, you would need access to satellite technologies that only very few organizations uh, could access and, and use in a limited uh, fashion in order to preserve their budgets. Nowadays, we have it all, almost seamlessly at almost uh, zero cost. What Eugenia was referring to before uh, regarding teaching and how it has changed, I, I also uh, had to shift my teaching from in-person to online, on the screen. It was quite remarkable. As Eugenia said, the learning outcomes in my case were also very satisfactory, were probably higher, higher than, than many in many in-person instances. It has the limitation of the lack of the in-person interaction that you have during, but in particular before and after the classroom. But again, imagine in a, in a, in a pandemic um, like the one that hit, uh, you know, basically a century ago, without these technologies, it's impossible to continue going to the classroom. 
Whereas in the digital environment, those people and collectives and organizations that have the possibility, which not everybody does, and issues of inequality are important to attend to, they are not created necessarily by the digital environment. They predate the digital environment. In some cases, the digital environment exacerbates them. In some cases, it lessens them. Um, but, um, you know, 100 years ago, it would have been impossible in the, you know, in the midst of a, a global pandemic to continue instruction uh, in the way it continued, sometimes with good quality, sometimes with not good quality, depending on many factors. Um, but uh, same with uh, political campaigning, and we talk about that, right? If you think about elections that have happened, um, for instance, in the U.S., uh, the presidential election, a lot went on online, right? Mm. Um, from rallies to fundraisings to etc. And so those are some of the examples in which we see, um, you know, people interacting with each other in the digital environment, uh, in some ways only, sometimes, sorry, only in the digital environment, in ways that would have been unthinkable just a short half a century ago. Um, so as that, event, as, yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I wanted to add that uh, in addition to work and, and teaching and education, which is important, what we were able to see is the importance of our, uh, I'd say, digital um, in social interactions in these past few months. Birthdays that were celebrated on Zoom, first dates that were I took uh, took place on on Meet, that kind of thing, because people wanted to still be in contact with each other. So it's I think it's interesting that besides what's productive and what's useful and what we call in the book uh, institutions schooling and, and, and work, that kind of thing. We also relied on the digital environment to keep up with our closest ones. And, and one particularly, I'd say, heartbreaking example of this is at the beginning of the pandemic, when relatives couldn't go into hospitals because we still knew very little about the disease and that kind of thing, a lot of people said goodbye to their grandparents or their parents or their loved ones on, on iPhones and on tablets that doctors and nurses held for them. So that, that was the last view they, they, they had of their family members or, or, or I'd say, loved ones uh, still alive. So that's, particularly, that's a particular example in which the digital environment, when, uh, I'd say, uh, envelops our whole lives, even till the end of our lives. Yeah, for sure. Pandemic has really impacted our interaction, really, with digital environments, uh, using them both for inform ourselves, but also to use them in a medical setting. For example, um, you can meet your doctor online for a consultation. So what do you think is the impact of this digitization of, on how we perceive ourselves within society and also maybe impact on the mental health? Yes, that's an excellent question. And it's uh, one that um, has... Um... You know, they, they, they were, there, there was already a research, but there is now much more, and I suspect there will be a lot more in the years to come. We see a number of trends. One is that, um, on the one hand, um, uh, it had, there has been an increase in the pressures of being constantly available to the others, right? Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, to be available many times in ways that are highly idealized. Um, you see that, for instance, on the kind of communication that goes on on Instagram, right? Where people present a very aestheticized, uh, you know, version of, of themselves. And uh, many times we know from the research when they see Others, in a, in, they, they forget that, you know, on Instagram, that they are in an idealized uh, version. And so they look at themselves in the mirror and they compare their image in the mirror with the image of the others on Instagram. And that does not have particularly positive outcomes. Um, so there is that pressure to be constantly available um, uh, and the pressure to to have like a perfect image or a near perfect image, or at least an image that conforms to certain ideals of beauty, health, productivity, etc., etc. Um, on the other hand, um, 
uh, what it has become evident is that it has become easier to create uh, support groups uh, in the digital environment. Many times people who uh, suffer because they feel that they are unique or they and, and, and their uniqueness is not highly valued or uh, that for one reason or the other, they feel um, ostracized or neglected by their proximate physical environment, the people they, they talk to on a daily basis in person. It, it has become now easier to find um, allies online, people who are like mm -hmm. them, who are going through the same, who they can relate and uh, identify to, who, with whom they can share tips um, and strategies for how to handle their situation. Um, so it has, in a sense, uh, lowered the barriers of um, access to others who are in the same uh, situation. So that has had a positive um, effect and on the, in, in terms of mental health. And the, the most basic uh, positive effect in terms of mental health is that it's very interesting how much the work of, of counseling and therapy has adapted and how quickly to online. I mean, the, the pandemic has been a very, very difficult situation for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Imagine not being able to access therapy and counseling um, if it was not in person, right? I mean, it would have, you know, probably our way of, of uh, dealing with the pandemic would have been much worse in general if it wasn't for um, the ability to live our lives socially at least partly in the digital environment. Yes, I, I'd like to add to that. The, Pablo was talking about support groups and, and personal support, which is uh, by therapy and counseling, and that's crucial. But it's also interesting to see how the digital environment allowed people um, to get together for social causes. I'm thinking about movements such as Black Lives Matter, of course, which we include in a book, or even Me Too, or what in Argentina was Ni Una Menos, Not One Woman Less, about gender violence in Argentina, or what in Chile was uh, Un Violador en Tu Camino, A Rapist in Your Path. All these movements, the, I would say, the um, uh, race justice and racial justice and even um, uh, gender inequality were already there, but they were, I'd say, diminished or even ignored by mainstream institutions, the press, governments, um, and, and what the digital environment allowed is that these people who cared deeply about these issues get together and, and, and demonstrate and get together to, to raise awareness of these crucial issues. And it was later that they were taken up, I'd say, by the political system or, or mainstream journalism and, and that they were made better known. But it's interesting, gender violence has been an issue in Argentina, Latin America, and probably in the rest of the world for a long time. It was only when women in Argentina got together, of course, there were grassroots organizations, and these, these people were also working face-to-face, -face, but they, they, the, they, the call to participate in this huge demonstration, a million women got together uh, in front of Congress in Argentina, was mostly done online, was mostly done on Facebook, on Twitter, on WhatsApp, And it was that mm -hmm. demonstration that, that uh, I say, sparked, uh, I would say, legislative change and also the idea that, that this was important. And eventually the le legalization of abortion I, last year. So you covered a few shortcomings and also quite a few benefits of uh, the digital environment. So I was wondering how excited are you about the prospects of digital environments? Uh, what can they achieve? And perhaps how can we start building the a ground uh, sort of ground the basis of the environments for the future use so they are robust so there's something that we really really want to have yes that's very important i mean we view the digital environment as an as a, an outgrowth as a product of society so your question is really to us um because we and, and i'm and i'm speaking on behalf of both of us because this is something that eugenia and i have talked about many many times and it's in the book it's a question about the society we want to to build um mm. it's not necessarily about the technology that we want to build but the society that we want to build um and um 
one thing that, you know, if you look at the history of communication and media technologies, for the better part of the 20th century, communication and media technologies came in two flavors. They were the, the one-to-one technologies, like the telephone or the postal system, and then the one-to-many technologies, like um, you know, the newspaper, uh, television, radio, etc. If you think about the one-to-many technologies, those were the best ways for, you know, to reach large portions of the population, but they were controlled by very few organizations. So what has happened in the past 25 years you know, or so is that there, you know, you know, the World Wide Web uh, and then you know, social media platforms, what they have done is that they have layered on top of the one-to-one and one-to-many a many-to-many communication infrastructure. And in this many-to-many communication infrastructure, as Eugenia was alluding to before in the case of Ni Una Menos or Me Too or Black Lives Matter, among other social movements, it has been possible for individual actors and, and collectives um, who before did not have the, the means to communicate to large segments of the population, now to get their message across, to organize themselves and to mobilize and to communicate. So because of that, um, we are cautiously optimistic about the prospects of building a more just, inclusive, and fair digital environment, and therefore society at large. And if you think about the change uh, that there has been uh, on matters of gender equality and, and racial and ethnic equality over the past five years, at least in some parts of the world, there has been more change than in, in, in a few decades combined. So this is not to say that there are not you know, negative, say, misogynistic, racist uh, discourse, tendencies, actions. Uh, there is plenty of speech in that, uh, unfortunately, of that caliber uh, digitally, but there is also a lot of the good stuff. And, and that's why, as Eugenia said before, we view the digital environment as intrinsically indeterminate, um, mm-hmm. and it's up to us to build the infrastructures, the rules and regulations, and the practices that would lead towards a path of a more equitable, more inclusive, and more just society, and therefore digital environment. Of course, of course, we don't think that this will be devoid of conflict. So there are powerful actors in the digital environment who contribute to the making of the rules, and it will take, I'd say, the, the engagement, the compromise of the whole society to change uh, these rules and to, to make a, a fairer society. But I think this is, um, at least we can see that there's at least some awareness of this. Um, the idea that, uh, I don't know, monopolies uh, are natural is already being challenged. Uh, even the, I'd say, United States government and other governments are thinking, how, how, this, how should this be regulated? what rights people should have online. People have a lots of rights offline, of course. How, how will they translate to our online existences, uh, right to our identity, right to our privacy, that kind of thing. So um, we don't think, and, and, and I think nobody thinks that this will be devoid of conflict, but we also don't think that this is impossible or that we, we should just throw up our hands and say, oh, this is the way it is. I think this is a, we think this is a moment uh, to actually think what we want this digital environment and, and um, relatedly the digital society and society as a whole to look like. Yes, for sure. And I really like this uh, sort of shift of perspective that indeed humanity is actually at the core of what we built with regards to digital environments. And the question is, as, as you say, is what kind of society do we want to really live in? So what discoveries? about yourself and society along your journey to writing the digital environment surprised you the most? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, personally, um, what has surprised me the most in the process of first writing the columns and then writing the books, the book, sorry, um, is, you know, we interviewed 60 colleagues from uh, a dozen different scientific disciplines 
And a common denominator across a lot of their answers has to do with the importance of the human factor, that even when we talk about artificial intelligence, algorithms, you know, we interviewed uh, uh, people who are working on the design, the communication design of the protocols and the technologies of uh, the crew that will fly to Mars. Okay, so even mm. that futuristic, okay? But in the end, even when we talk about the most sophisticated, cutting-edge, futuristic technologies, what we found is the resilience of the human factor. And that in the end, is about us as people, what we can dream, what we can think, what our limitations are, the need to hold ourselves accountable. And that when we think, oh, it is because of the algorithm. No, it's not really because of the algorithm. It's because a particular organization deciding to build certain technologies in certain ways. So if we don't like that, it's not about the algorithm. It's about that organization or the society in which that organization exists and that, you know, uh, rewards that kind of technology. So, um, it, I mean, I, b- because we set out, as I said, you know, at the, towards the beginning, uh, we set out to write about the social science of digital culture, the social science of the internet, um, it to me is quite surprising, and in the end, it all uh, comes full circle to interrogate us as people and the societies we have built, we continue rebuild, and the ones that mm. we would like to uh, build differently. Yes, and and besides this kind of big picture, which I think it's I- important and interesting, I I also when I finish we finish writing the book. I also thought is um, uh, I could I could say how I learned to stop to worry and love the internet because I saw myself reflected in many of what the experts said, like uh, as a teacher, as a professor, as a parent, as a member of the society. So it was interesting that interviewing all these experts uh, helped me understand uh, the way I interact with people or the way I interact with technology. And it also gave me like a better idea of what I could do to actually change things. Like for instance, I don't take control. I was, I used to be very worried about my kids screen time, as experts said. And, and I remember one particular interview um, with Ellen Wartella, who's a total expert in children and, and teenagers and screens. And, and that she said, uh, they're going to be fine and they need to learn how to live in the digital environment as, you teach your kids how to cross the street, how to look at the light, how to stop when the light is red, that kind of thing. And so you should also teach them how to live in the digital environment. And to learn to live in the digital environment, they they, they need to be in the digital environment. You can't take them away from there because then they won't know how to interact. It's like, I know, uh, taking children out of the city because it's safer for them to to be raised in, 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 in the countryside. But then they get to the city and they don't know how to act in the city. So one of the most interesting personal things uh, for me was to say, yes, this is the environment we live in. This is the environment my children will live in. I want them to learn how to live here and not to be, uh, and not to be strangers to this. From your expert point of view, do you have any strategies on how to resist the 2 a.m. doom scrolling? <laughs> well, the first one is to sleep at 2 a.m. rather than to look at the phone. Um, that's a great question. I think all of us uh, have different levels of tolerance, interest, um, and ability also to resist what tempts us. Um, I personally try, so I, I um, after a certain time in the day, I don't look at uh, the phone or the computer anymore. Um, and what I have started doing in recent times um, is uh, also during the day to set aside sort of uh, connectivity-free um, times for work. And I am a swimmer, and I realize that one of the things that I like the most about swimming is that nobody really can talk to me <laughs> through the phone or any other technological means when I'm in the pool. Um, you know, I also like bike, etc. But there you can talk to people. But the, I think there is something to be said, like Eugenia said, about deep immersion that is very rewarding. 
beyond a certain threshold, um, it can be a little taxing. So I, I think what has worked for me, and I'm not an expert, it's just what works for me, is to try to uh, set aside um, times that are free from connectivity um, and uh, I've tried to avoid not only the, the 2 a.m. doom scrolling, but also the 8 p.m. binge watching that leads into the 1 a.m. <laughs> bedtime. <laughs> uh, not only successful doing that, but uh, one tries. I, I think Pablo is very healthy. I'm online even when I run because I use an app that communicates how much how much I run, how many kilometers I run. So even when I run, which is my exercise, I'm online. And I only set up free connectivity time uh, when I'm with my kids, like for dinner and lunch, that kind of thing. And when I have to work, I really have to concentrate on something. I turn off all other uh, social media platforms, that kind of things. But then I also, I kind of sometimes at 2 a.m. I give in. I say, this is really interesting. I really want to know how cases are, how coronavirus cases are going up, I don't know, in Afghanistan or in Iran. And I, I, I read about it and I said, yes, you cannot be addicted to the city. Nobody would say if you like to walk in the city or if you want to go downtown, you're addicted. So I think this is the environment I live in. I really relish this environment. So I'm going to look, I'm going to doom scroll all I want because I'm in a habitant of that <laughs> environment. <laughs> Well, those are quite a few good tips to have some connectivity free times in your schedule. But as you say, if you really like doing this, well, might as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Sure. So one of the projects uh, I'm personally working on is with Eugenia. Eugenia is leading a team um, uh, of uh, four people, myself included, and uh, two f uh, students, actually. So speaking about the, the mentorship and the passing uh, on the torch. So the four of us, led by Eugenia, are working on a study of uh, the interpretations and perceptions uh, surrounding issues of fake news, misinformation, and disinformation in the context of the most recent uh, presidential campaign in Argentina in 2019. Um, it's a study where we combined um, interviews every week with a number of people uh, for a period of six months before, during, and after the election with a series of surveys and online experiments to try to understand not so much the production and the circulation of fake news and misinformation, which has uh, been the, the dominant focus of the literature and the research on that particular topic, but the reception of misinformation, how much mm -hmm. people perceive it, um, what they understand it to be, what do they do about it, and what effects they think it has uh, on them, and what effects actually it has on them when we run experiments and we see whether people are able to recognize or not, detect or not, uh, intend to share or not, etc. So that's one of the projects. Yes, and what's interesting about this project, uh, relating it to the digital environment, is that uh, the, the way people react or interact with information and news uh, is, of course, uh, mediated by, te by technology, but it's not determined by technology. So we did around 70 interviews, and, and the way people in Argentina interpret news and read news and everything has to do mostly with social issues in Argentina, with the political history of the country, than whether they read the news on the cell phone or, the, or, or their laptops, or they, they watch them on television, or they see them on the newspaper. So I think that it, this has to do with the way, uh, not, not thinking the digital environment as apart from all the other, but it's integrated to, to our, all our environments. This sounds really exciting. So where can yes. our listeners find more information about your work and also the book? Excellent. So in, in my uh, case, um, I have a website, um, which is my last name, B-O-C-Z-K-O-W-S-K-I, Bochkowski.org, O-R-G. Um, they can do a Google search, they will find it, they will find my uh, page on the university. Uh, they, are, uh, they will find the link, among other things, to uh, the digital environment, which is available 
for sale on the site of its publisher, MIT Press, as well as your favorite online uh, bookstore from Amazon to uh, the others. Yes, so I'm going to do the X, X, X generation thing and I'm going to say, look me up on Twitter. It's U-G-E-M-I-T-C-H, U-G-E-M-I-T-C-H, Ugemich. That's like my my nickname and the beginning of my last name. And I, uh, I I tweet about my work and I tweet about the work we do together. And I tweet about, I'd say, technology issues and communication issues. And there's also a lot of random observations about everyday life and parenting there. Eugenia is an influencer, uh, has many thousands of followers, and is a fabulous uh, communicator on Twitter. So I highly recommend people to check out her uh, Twitter uh, account. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. It has been truly fascinating discussion. Our pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest and your questions. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. And thanks to the listeners for staying with us uh, through the end. Definitely.